Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt, the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. I want to welcome you. For those who are worshiping with us online or at uh, Wetumpka, Pike Road, or at Westside, we're glad you're along for the ride. Um, today, we're starting a new series entitled Why. We're giving some real answers, uh, some good answers to some really hard questions. I get questions in the email, uh, in the email, okay, on the World Wide Web, okay. Uh, yeah, I get questions via email or text or people coming up to me and just asking me questions all the time saying, I don't know what to say about certain things. And so we're going to spend the next six weeks answering a number of questions like, why are we pro-life? Why do we believe the Bible's true? Why is it necessary to go to church? I mean, why would, how would you answer that? What would be a good answer to these questions? Plus a whole bunch more. And so uh, you're going to love this series. And if you need a pen, by the way, um, in just a minute, you'll see our ushers will walk the aisles. If, they'll, if you raise your hand, they'll give you a pen. You're going to want to take some notes on this. But the idea behind the whole series is simply on the top of your outline, inside your bulletin, you'll find an outline entitled where I'm going today. The first topic we're going to tackle is why do we trust the Bible? And the reason that we're doing this series is 1 Peter 3.15. Peter said this, in your heart set, set apart, Christ is Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you the reason, to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do so with gentle, this with gentleness and respect. I want to be able to help you think through how I would answer these questions. I mean, I had a neighbor for a while who would love to stump me with hard questions. I'd be out mowing my lawn and all of a sudden he'd be standing right in front of me and I'd turn off the lawnmower and he'd go, got a question for you. And I go, right now, in the middle of the lawn. He goes, yep, got to have an answer. Well, what was fun was um, I, had, I did a lot of reading on a lot of things because I realized I'm not, I got to be ready when I'm cutting the grass here, okay? There might be a hard question coming up. Well, that's the way it's going to happen in your life and my life too. We're going to be sitting with our kids and they're going, hey, why is this true? We're going to be out to lunch with a friend. Hey, why do you believe this? Well, what if you had a reasonable answer for the hope you have? And so that's the idea behind this series, to help us be ready for this, so we give an answer for our marvelous hope in Jesus. And today we want to talk about, um, why do we trust the Bible so much? Let me have a word of prayer, and we'll jump right in. Lord, I thank you for your word. It is our guide in all matters of faith and practice, and today I want to give some good reasons for why we believe that. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak and move me out of the way, and teach us some things we need to know. Lord, we would love to be ready, just like Peter said, we'd love to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reasons for our hope. And today, Lord, I pray that you will help us um, get a good handle on some things, have some right things to say. In the name of Christ, I pray, amen. Um, I look back in my notes on this, and it had been at least four years since we'd gone through some of these questions at all, and so... Every four or five years, I want to go through some of these things again, and it's amazing to me how much clearer some things or how much deeper my convictions have gotten even in those four or five years. So anyway, uh, point A on the outline is at center point, we believe that the Bible is our guide in all matters of faith and practice. It's our guide. What are we going to trust in? Popular opinion? I mean, that's not very reliable. My opinion versus yours? Mm, Not getting any warmer. Well, what are we going to trust in? Well, we trust in the Scripture. This is our guide. That's why the outlines are always filled with Scripture every week. I really don't care if you remember my opinion. I care very much that you and I understand what God's Word says. And when we have God's Word, we have a guide, a compass that will always point us toward the truth. If that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? amen? Yeah, in our culture today, we have a lot of people who are assailing the Bible, saying this isn't true anymore, or maybe it was true for people in the past, but it's not for us. It's out of date. And um, 
man, if we start looking at things like that and we start rejecting the Bible, well, then where do we go? So in that side of our statement of beliefs, if you've never been to our website, you can go to centeringlives.com. You'll find our belief statement there. Uh, this is what we have listed there is our belief in the Bible. The sole basis at Centerpoint, the sole basis for our belief is the Bible. The 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, the Bible is God's word to all people in all times. The entire Bible is uniquely God-breathed, without error, and the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. This is what we believe, and that's why we appeal to it. If you come into my office and seek pastoral counseling, or from any of our staff, we're always going to direct you back to what the Bible says. And that gives us great comfort. It gives me great comfort. I, I can stand in front of you on a Sunday morning completely confident that what I'm presenting here is what God's Word says. To the best of my ability, that's all I want to do. And then, because uh, I've even had people ask me, they go, well, who do you think you are? And I go, well, I don't think I'm anybody. Well, what makes you, what gives you the right to say this? I go, well, what gives me the right, it's really not a right, it's a privilege that I have to say this, and God called me to do this. And what's good is, I don't have to worry about it being true or not. I'm reading from God's word. And as you'll see as we go through this, God's word does work in our hearts and changes us. And it's a wonderful thing. That brings us to point B, seven reasons why we trust in the Bible. If someone ever asks you, give me one good reason you believe in the trust the Bible so much, you can go, well, I'll give you seven. And whip out your outline. <laughs> that would be great, but I don't know if you'll carry that with you all the time. So Anyway, I just want you to ponder on some things with me, but I hope you do take this home and keep it somewhere. Seven reasons why we trust the Bible. Number one, the Bible is a supernatural book. It's not like any other book ever written. It's not. This is something amazing. There's something amazing about the Bible, and God's Holy Spirit is all over it. Um, Hebrews 4.12 uh, talks about this. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And in the margin, if you write the word motives. Man, the Bible is so good at exposing my motives. Yours too, if you'll read it. You'll be amazed at how when you read the Bible, all of a sudden you'll go, I was feeling pretty righteous about something until I read this. And all of a sudden I go, ah, I had a bad attitude, Lord. Yep. And all of a sudden, I need to end up, as a result of my Bible reading, I need to go make a phone call and make an apology. Or I need to get going and get on the stick and quit procrastinating. Has anybody else ever had this happen besides me when you read the Bible? Raise your hand up high. If that's happened to you, raise your hand up. Oh, yeah. If you haven't had it happen lately, you just pray for that and ask God to show you. He'll, he'll convict you of things. And there's three words that I want us to that are in conjunction with this, that are terribly important, and Christians use them, and they're all related, and you'll see this. But the first is revelation. And that's God's disclosure of himself and his ways. These are things we never would have discovered on our own because he wants a relationship with us. And so revelation, it basically means God initiated. God initiates. God revealed himself to us. I mean, that's what's so significant about Jesus coming into the world. God put skin on and became one of us. Talked to us, showed us what he's like. Explained himself to us. I mean, the creator of the universe became one of us. And that's the whole idea of why people couldn't wait to write these things down in gospel so that everyone could know about him. Above all, Peter wrote about this, above all, you must realize no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or human initiative. 
No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. It was God initiated. There weren't a bunch of people sitting around a smoking room, smoky room, you know, smoking cigars going, yeah, put that part in about him walking on water. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, put that down. And people will tell you stuff like this. The Bible was written by a bunch of people who wanted to control people. A handful of people so they could control everybody. Well, it didn't work out too well for the disciples. Most of them were executed. If they did, they were terrible at it. In fact, as you'll see here, the next word is inspiration. The truth is that it's God-breathed. It was divine influence on the minds of 40 different biblical scholars, ranging from farmers to fishermen to kings to tax collectors from different countries over a period of 1,500 years. This was not a few guys sitting around having a meeting one week writing the Bible. These are writings collected over 1,500 years. People from all different backgrounds. And they all point us toward God and his workings in our world. And so by inspiration, we mean God breathed. That's what the word literally means. But the idea behind that is, is that these guys, when they were writing the books of the Bible, they weren't just sitting there taking dictation and you know, they were like robots doing this, writing this down. That's not what happened at all. God used the experiences and the prophecies that he showed them, the visions that he gave them to inspire them. And they wrote things down according to their own personalities, according to their own language even, according to their own cultural experiences. They explained things. And this is what God is doing. And so it's quite remarkable when you read it and you understand that this is like no other book ever written. All scripture, Paul talking about this to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what's true, make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us to do what's right. And God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. He inspired people. He inspired Moses to write the first five books of the Bible. Um, He inspired Samuel. He inspired David to write so many of the Psalms. And these are David's love songs to the Lord. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you read them. But that's what we mean by inspiration. Not only did God initiate, but God breathed this into people's lives so that when they wrote this down, that this was, uh, these were amazing accounts of God and his working in their lives. And finally, the third is illumination, like to light up. Okay, on this one, this means God helps us. God initiates, God breathes, God helps us. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the spiritual truths of the Bible. I put this in here because a lot of times people go, okay, well, maybe the Bible is even God's revelation, and maybe the God did inspire people, but I can't read the Bible. I'm no scholar. I never went to seminary. Well, here's what's great. The Bible says not only did God initiate this, not only did he inspire people to write down the things that you and I need to know, but he'll help us when we read it. Now, this is incredible. These are the promises of Scripture. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the spiritual truths of the Bible. Here's a quote from 1 Corinthians, Paul writing again. For the Holy Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. Now, no one can know a person's thoughts except the person's own spirit, and no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so that we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. See, this is what's so great. When, you, when we surrender our lives to Christ, Jesus promised his disciples the Holy Spirit would come and to guide them into all truth. 
when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he reveals God's thoughts to us. That's why when you read the Bible, sometimes it's like the words just jump off the page. It happened to me the other day again. I'm reading something I've read maybe 20 times in my life, but it's as if I'm reading it for the first time. It was pointing out something I was wrong about, by the way. But anyway, uh, that's beside the point. But <laughs> it's amazing. And I, I sit there and go, how is this possible? Well, if I'm seeking Christ and I'm seeking a right relationship with him, the Holy Spirit will guide us into all that. So you and I don't have to be afraid to try. In fact, if you take your outline and kind of open it up and go literally right across to the side here under resources, you'll see Bible reading plans. You can go to Bible.com. There has never been a better time um, to try to learn to read the Bible. It's available for free in dozens of translations, all kinds of reading plans. If you just go to Bible.com, I showed somebody in my office the other day. They were going, well, I don't read that well. I go, here's the best part. And I selected one of it, and I hit the play button. It'll read it out loud to you. So when I'm driving back and forth to work, most days I have it set on that, and I hit play, and it goes through the Bluetooth in my car. And the other day I got in with a friend, and I got in and started up the car, and it started reading again. They go, your car reads the Bible to you? <laughs> I go, yeah, it's a special pastor's edition, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, limited edition, Pastor Deluxe or whatever. No, but I mean, my phone reads the Bible to me, yeah. It'll read it to you. If we don't read the Bible these days, it's our fault. Please read the Bible. Don't be afraid to try. I won't understand it. The Holy Spirit will help you. Well, how can I be sure? Because God initiated and God inspired the writers to write down what they wrote. We got to do this. So, first reason is the Bible's supernatural. It's not like any other book ever written. It's living and active and powerful. Secondly, this point two, Jesus viewed Scripture as reliable and authoritative. I trust the Bible because Jesus trusted the Bible. Here's Jesus, Matthew five seventeen. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Well, why is this important? Because you will find people all the time now in our culture will say, they'll look up some topic and they'll say, well, Jesus never talked about it, so if he didn't talk about it, we don't know what the Bible says. Yeah, we do. Jesus said he trusted the rest of Scripture. He trusted the whole Old Testament. It was written. I mean, it doesn't work to say, well, Jesus wouldn't have agreed with that. He said right here he did. Don't fall for that argument. We trust the Scripture because Jesus trusted the Scripture. The night before he was crucified, even prayed that God would sanctify his disciples by the truth. And his word, your word is truth. Jesus said that in John 17. God's word is truth. And it does no good to say, on pick any topic that Jesus didn't happen to mention and say, well, he didn't talk about it, well, so we don't know anything. It's like, well, no, the rest of the scripture tells us those things. And if he didn't cover it specifically, he was saying, I'm standing by that. Here's a third reason why we trust the Bible. Moses, David, and the apostles viewed scriptures reliable and authoritative. Here's Moses. When he got into, right before they went into the promised land, he recited everything he recorded, all the commands of the Lord. And here's what he said. These instructions are not empty words. They are your life. These aren't just words to you. 
This isn't just some random collection of commandments. These are your life. David, how can a young man, how can a young person stay pure by obeying your word? I've in your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've rejoiced in your laws, rejoiced in the Bible as much as in riches. I'll study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I'll delight in your decrees and not forget your word. Open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. I mean, what if we thought about the Bible that way? Scripture. This is better than winning the lottery. That's what he said. I rejoice in your laws as much as in riches. We go, well, the Bible's pretty good, but I'd still rather win the lottery. David said, uh-uh, this is a lot better. Because this will guide you in knowing what to do with all the riches once you get them. Paul, the New Testament. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Everything that was written in the past was recorded to teach us, to give us hope. God initiated it. He breathed it. And he'll help us understand it. Jesus believed this. Moses believed this. David believed this. Paul, the rest of the disciples, I could have put a lot more references in here. I just picked three. So why do we trust the Bible? All the trustworthy people in the Bible trusted the Bible. The Son of God himself trusted the Bible. Here's the fourth reason. Archaeological discoveries continually verify that the people and the places in the Bible were real. I mean, you will find people that will talk about the Bible as mythology. Like it's talking about Valhalla or some, you know, some place or uh, Never Never Land or Xanadu or something else that it's like the, the, the places in the Bible aren't real. I mean, a couple of weeks ago we talked about Paul on his journey to Damascus. Damascus has been continually inhabited for 3,500 years. Nobody debates that. Well, Paul was going to that place, real place, on Google Maps. Nazareth, where Jesus lived and grew up. It's on Google Maps. You can find it. Bethlehem, where he was born, real place. And when people tell you the Bible's all made up, it's all mythology, well, that's kind of weird that all these places are real. Okay, well, the places are real, but the people aren't real. Mm, that's not true either. There's no archaeological evidence that supports the Bible. There is tons of archaeological evidence that supports the Bible. In fact, um, just to read a reference to you, Luke 3, 1. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor, and Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. And you go, wow, that's a life-changing verse, John. No, it's not, but it is historical. I mean, when Luke set out to write the gospel, he set out to make a very accurate account. This is historical. Now, the archaeological evidence is the Pilate Stone, discovered in June 1961. I've shared this on Easter a couple times to verify this. Can we put that picture up on the screen, please? The Pilate Stone is, this, is a, uh, this isn't the real one. The, the real one is in, uh, the Jerusalem, in a museum in Jerusalem, but this is out by Caesarea by the Sea, um, there's an archaeological dig that was being done in the 60s. They were excavating an old stadium, and they found a set of stairs where there was a block that was misplaced. And they pulled the block out, and they turned it over, and there was this inscription on it. If you can put the image back up one more time. There was an inscription on it, uh, and the inscription reads this. To the divine 
uh, Caesar Tiberius, Pontius Pilate has dedicated this. And the stone had been reused in a set of stairs. It had already been, originally been a dedication stone, probably for a, a pier or a temple. 400 years later, they'd, or 300, 400 years later, they'd torn that down and reused a lot of the stone. And so this thing had been laid in this stairs in this, to form one of the steps in the stairs. And when they flipped it over, they went, oh my goodness. Up till then, up until 1961, people said there's no archaeological evidence to support that Jesus ever met a guy named Pontius Pilate, let alone that he lived at the same time as Emperor Tiberius, which is exactly what it says in Luke 3.1, which is exactly what allows us to date that this was from 26 to 36 AD, and now no one, no one disputes this anymore. Pilate was a real guy. And we know that he moved his headquarters out close to the sea, dedicated to Caesar, Caesarea by the sea, Caesar's city by the sea. That was his headquarters. He wanted to get out of Jerusalem because the Jewish people hated him. He had a lot of building projects there. But is there more? Oh, yeah, there's more. I mean, the reason I'm including some of these, I've actually seen that. I've been to Israel about 20 years ago, saw that uh, replica that was sitting out there. They just have it sitting there. I thought that was amazing. Here's another one. Um, I was in, my wife and I took a trip to Europe last year, and we went to Paris, and we're in the Louvre, and there's a stone there, and it's called the Moabite stone. King Misha of Moab, this is 2 Kings 3, was a sheep breeder. He used to pay the kings of Israel an annual tribute of 100,000 lambs and, wool, uh, and the wool of 100,000 rams. But after Ahab's death, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel, 2 Kings 3. And if you read the whole chapter, it tells about a war that happened and how Misha, this king of Moab, actually sacrificed his son to the god Chemosh, burned him alive. Uh, terrible thing. So you go, okay, why is that important? Well, in August of 1868, there was an um, Anglican missionary who discovered a stone, and it's called the Moabite Stone. If you could put this up there, this is on display um, in the Louvre Museum. And it's not a very good shot, sorry. But it's on display there. And what's incredible is, if you, when this was translated, they brought it back, it's on display there now, um, and when they translated it, it mentions this guy, this is a tribute, Misha, and he's saying how he took on the Israelite king, Ahab, he didn't call him Ahab, he called him the son of Omri, which is what the Bible calls him. And that he worshipped a god called Yahweh. And that he was given victory through the god Chemosh, the god that he burned his son to. And you go, well, John, I mean, who cares about all this? Well, here's why this matters. People will say the Bible isn't true. It's been all handed down through scriptures. And if you've ever played the telephone game where you whisper something in someone's ear and they whisper something in someone's ear and they whisper something in someone's ear and then it goes all the way around the room, 30 people in the room, by the end, the message is completely changed. And that's what happens when you hand down the Bible it's all this oral tradition, and it all will have changed, and none of the historical facts are right. None of the historical facts are right except Pontius Pilate, who lived exactly when the Bible said as he did. None of the historical facts are right except this guy named Misha, who sacrificed his son to Chemosh, and he fought against Ahab, the son of Omri. I mean, this isn't just a big mega theme in the Bible. These are specific things tucked away in 2 Kings 3. And that didn't get messed up in the telephone game? 
I mean, everybody's getting that part right. This should give us great confidence. If you're getting that part right, I mean, this is on display in the Louvre right now. I mean, if you want to get a trip to Paris, want me to go along and show you where it is, I'll be glad to go, okay, you know. It's sitting there. In the Near Eastern Antiquities, close to where the coat of Hammurabi is. Historical, real stuff. This is not made up. Bible's true. The fifth reason. Bible complains, contains a number of, astonishing number of fulfilled prophecies. Not just one or two, dozens. I've put in four in your outline here. The Bible claims this. God says in Isaiah 46, I alone am God, and there's no one like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Only I can. So here are a couple of things, events in Jesus' life. He was born in Bethlehem. That was prophesied in Micah 5.2, 700 years before it happened. Gave you two references in the New Testament, Luke 2, where he was born in Bethlehem. You know, they had to go to a, take a census. Joseph and Mary had to go from the northern part of Israel to the southern part to make that happen. Matthew 2, where the wise men come. Herod, who doesn't even want to recognize that a Messiah would come, asks them, well, where do the scriptures say? And the scribes, the officials who understood the Old Testament, appealed to Micah 5 too. They said, well, 700 years ago, a guy said that uh, he'd be born in Bethlehem. And that's why uh, King Herod had all the babies two years and under killed. That was fulfilled. Jesus was silent before his accusers. Isaiah chapter 53. And it's real important for us to understand this too, that when you read Isaiah 53, it says, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before his shearers, he did not open up his mouth. That's in the same passage where it says that um, it was our weaknesses he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God and a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be made whole. Well, who are they talking about? I mean, it sounds exactly like Jesus going to the cross without saying a word. Well, the problem is that was written 700 years earlier also. Psalm 22, let me hit one more here real quickly, and that's Psalm 22 reference. His hands and feet were pierced. This would be 900 to 1,000 years earlier. Listen to this. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments among them and throw dice for my clothing. And if you read the account of Jesus' crucifixion, that's exactly what happened. 900 years later, his hands and feet were pierced. They didn't even practice crucifixion at that time in history. Why would anybody write that? Nobody says that Psalms was written after the crucifixion. There are dozens more, dozens and dozens and dozens more. I think it's a pretty good reason to trust the Bible. I mean, God initiated that. He breathed that into the prophets' minds. They wrote this down. He inspired David to write Psalm 22. And then God will help us understand it. A sixth reason, 
The Bible is unquestionably historically reliable when compared to other ancient writings. It's unquestionably historically reliable. Luke said, My people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I've also decided to write a careful account for you. That's why he was careful to note that Pilate was serving in Judea during Tiberius. I mean, he got it all right. There's a lot more detail than that. But what's so incredible, what I want you to understand here is this, is that on this, I want you to compare. Sometimes people go, yeah, but again, I mean, things change. We don't even have any of the originals. And we got copies of the Bible. Like, there's a copy. Everybody will acknowledge, well, yeah, there's a whole copy of the New Testament in the Vatican that's, you know, about, it's written about two, uh, two, 325, 375, somewhere there. And there's another called a, a Codex Sinaiticus. It's about the same, about 350 A.D. We got whole copies of the New Testament. And so if people wonder, well, our New Testament's been recopied and changed. I mean, you can't rely on this thing. Well, you can go compare it to a copy of the Bible. It was from 350. That's going back 1,700 years. I've got a copy of the Bible in my office. It's from the 1800s. It reads the same as the new ones. Everybody's worried that there's all these mistakes that have happened. And they go, well, since we don't have the originals, how can you know that's what was actually said? I mean, these people didn't copy it correctly. Well, sometimes I want to put this out there for ancient manuscripts. If you take a Latin class, you're probably going to have to read Caesar's Gallic Wars. He lived, it was written sometime 58 to 50 BC and explains Caesar's conquests in Gaul. We have nine copies in existence that are existence that are ancient copies, and they're from 900 years. They're from like, you know, 850 or so AD. We have nine copies that we can date back. They're 900 years after Caesar lived. Well, if you compare that with the New Testament, okay, which was written from 50 to 100 AD. Um, we have 5,500 copies that were written within 300 years. I mean, I just want to put something in perspective for you. If I was to take a sheet of paper like this and have 10 sheets of paper up here on this uh, podium and just say, okay, these 10 sheets of paper represent everything we know about Caesar, then 600 years closer to that, there's 500 sheets of paper in each one of these packets. This is what we would know about Caesar, just a couple of sheets, 10 of them. And here's what we would find reliable about the New Testament, about Jesus and the apostles. I'm not finished yet. Oh, that one lost. Okay, lost to history. So let's take out 10 sheets of paper here. This is everything we know about Caesar. And we trust this as reliably accurate. Nobody questions that Caesar really existed. You take a Latin class, a history class, nobody's going, I don't believe that. Telephone game. We don't even know if this guy did anything more than make a salad. I mean, we don't know who he is. Can't believe it. Nobody will ever question the historical stuff, even though the only copies we have, we only have nine copies that are within 900 years. We have 5,500 copies, including all the fragments and New Testament books and things that would support the New Testament is accurate. This versus this. 
fact, you'll find a quote on the back here um, from a guy named F.F. Bruce. The evidence for the New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence from many writings of classical authors that the authenticity of which no one even dreams of questioning, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, the authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. It's true. But because it's in the Bible, it's not true. I mean, I'm just... So does this prove Jesus walked on water because we have a lot of copies? No. Does this prove that Caesar actually lived? No. I'm just saying, people go, well, there's archaeological evidence for Caesar. There's archaeological evidence for the Bible. Let's compare apples to apples. That's why we trust the Bible. One last point real quickly. Oh, and by the way, the Dead Sea Scrolls help explain all this and I've got to move on to point seven here. If you want to do an interesting study, just in 1947, some scrolls were found. I'm talking about all the New Testament. The Old Testament, they were preserved in jars. Copies of the Old Testament were preserved in some clay jars for over a 1,000 years. They were discovered in 1947. Leather scrolls copied by a bunch of Jewish monks near the Dead Sea. And so these things were um, 2,000 years old. But the oldest copies we'd had were from like 900 A.D. or 700 A.D. And so these went back to 200 B.C. And they, they're virtually identical. And so we had these 2,000-year-old scrolls that we could now compare modern translations with, and they're trustworthy. You need to get online and look that up. Point seven, the Bible changes people. And I want you to understand this. This is what is so amazing. The Bible is living and active We read that in Hebrews 4. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, Jews and also Gentiles. Get rid of the filth that's in your lives, James said, and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your heart. It is the power to save your souls. You know, the Bible has, since the Holy Spirit is energizing the Bible and illuminating things to us because God initiated it, God breathed it, and God helps us understand it, Changing lives, every time you read the Bible, your life will be changed. Maybe not just that second, but seeds will be planted in there, and it'll come to fruition. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, God says it always accomplishes what I want it to. Met a man a couple years ago. He's in full-time ministry now. I go, how'd you get into ministry? He said, well, God convinced me that he was real. And I said, well, how did he do that? And he said, oh, man, I was about to kill myself in a hotel desperate for any kind of hope, reached in the nightstand. There was a Gideon Bible. Somebody had marked a page in that Bible that said that God was close to the brokenhearted and he comforts those who are crushed in spirit. Darndest thing. So I started reading. So I stayed up all night. And so I came away going, oh my goodness, there is a God. He loves me. Gave his life to Christ. Changed his life reading the Bible. If you ever wonder if those Gideons are onto something, yeah, they're onto something. Life application for the whole thing. Look, I, I could give you all these reasons. It won't matter if we don't read and obey it, though. Those are two blanks. If I'm going to have the Bible, if the Bible's trustworthy and true, it does no good to know it and not read it. It will not come into your head or my head by osmosis. 
I can put the Bible under my pillow every night and expect it to soak through, and it will not. I've got to read it and listen to what it says and obey it. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. If you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, God will bless you for doing it. Jesus also said, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me, and because they love me, my Father in heaven will love them. I'll love them and reveal myself to each one of them. The more we read and obey, the more God will reveal. Bible.com. It'll read it to you. I've given you seven reasons why I trust the Bible. I hope they're helpful to you. But if you want that change in your life, you want the Holy Spirit to convict you and speak to you, you and I, if I want that, we got to read it and obey it and do what it says. The more we read and obey, the more God will reveal. Why is he going to give us level two understanding if we don't even have level one obedience? Don't be afraid to read the Bible. God initiated it, God breathed it, and God will help us get it. Can we have a word of prayer, please? Lord, I just pray that we will not be afraid to try to read the Bible. This is not just for a bunch of eggheads in a seminary somewhere. This is a real book written by real people whom you inspired. And you initiated it so we'd know how to live and we'd know you. If the Lord spoke to you about reading the Bible this morning, about being dedicated to that, would you just acknowledge that right where you are, just silently and say, God, I heard you. Give me a hunger for your word. Help me read it. Help me understand it. And help me obey it. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.